KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. Hey, everybody, it's Flashpoint host Cherry Gregg. I just wanted to say I appreciate all of your support of the Flashpoint show and podcast. Would you do me a favor? Would you subscribe to the podcast and be sure to rate and review? We need your reviews to get us to the top. Have a happy 2021. Now back to the show. Coming up. To kick off Black History Month, we dive deep into the rise of Black women to leadership positions. Women have exerted their power. What's the standard for this ascension? It is extraordinarily difficult to get these opportunities in the first instance. And then once we get them, it's a very tenuous job trying to hold on to them because we're not given the same leeway that other people give. What is the price for being first? We take a look. Then she wrote a letter to the editor challenging a double standard on the scrutiny of women in power. We should get the same deference, the same patience, and the same willingness to provide support. One of Philly's first talks about the realities of smashing glass ceilings. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program, Organ Donors Save Lives. Register today at donors1.org. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. To kick off Black History Month, we're taking a look at the rise of black women. In recent days, Kamala Harris was sworn in as vice president of the United States, becoming the first black and first South Asian woman to fill the role. But black women's power extends far beyond politics. Locally, Philadelphia has a black woman police chief, prisons commissioner, president judge, and more. But is this a trend or is this the future? And what's the price these women will pay? With me to discuss this Flashpoint is Stacey Hawkins. She's a Law professor at Rutgers University and an expert on diversity and the law. We also have Christine Jacobs, executive director of Represent PA. Ladies, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you, Cherry. We've seen a number of Black women be elevated. Daisy, I want you to kind of react to this. Can you try to put it in some context of what we're seeing? I think what we're seeing is the kind of fruition of a long time of Black women paying their dues, putting in their time, making their way through the ranks. I mean, I think it's um, really just the culmination of, you know, these women and Black women in general paying their dues for a a long time and a lot of years and finally getting the recognition they deserve. Um, You know, obviously... Uh, you know, we've been in politics for a very long time. I mean, you know, we can all go back to, you know, Shirley Chisholm and, you know, think about the ways in which we have been aspiring to the highest office of this nation for a very long time. So again, this has been a long time coming and um, these women have certainly earned their stripes. Is it as many as we might think though, Stacey, if you think about it, or are these just, or we do, uh, does uh, the ascension of one person get a lot of a lot of light to make us think that there are more. So I think that there really is a wave. There is a trend of Black women ascending to leadership around the country. I mean, you know, just kind of in preparation for this, I was thinking about, you know, all of the Black, you know, women leaders. I mean, you know, just kind of in the political arena, you know, in addition, obviously, to Kamala Harris, you know, Stacey Abrams almost ascended to the governorship, but she certainly, right, has made a name for herself in politics. Um, You know, Marsha Fudge now, uh, you know, uh, people like 
you know, Loretta Lynch in the, in the Obama administration, you know, uh, first black female uh, attorney general, um, Muriel Bowser and Keisha Lance Bottoms and, uh, you know, all of the uh, black female mayors that we have, you know, newly elected members of Congress, Cori Bush. There is really, I think, a movement happening that represents not only black women pushing, right, the boundaries of what's possible, but also, again, just realizing a long effort um, on behalf of black women to really uh, ascend to these positions of power. Christine, I want to give you a, a moment to sort of react to all of this. And, you know, how does this tie to the broader, you know, movement to get more women in leadership? I think they're very well tied. You know, I want to echo something that Stacy said, and she talked about women earning their stripes. I think it's, but I also think it's beyond earning their stripes. I think it's exerting their power. Pennsylvania, for example, you know, I track Pennsylvania politics most closely, and we've had roughly seven or so women in the state legislature for, for many, many terms. And um, one of our state reps, uh, Donna Bullock, who's head of the Black Caucus in Pennsylvania now always laughs and says there are more white guys named Mike in the legislature than there are black women. But this year, women have exerted their power. And Joanna McClinton is now head of the caucus in Pennsylvania. And so despite being nine women, uh, nine black women out of the roughly 100 Democratic representatives, she's in charge of the Democratic caucus. And she's brought other, oh, guess what? She's brought other women with her. So Donna is the third Black woman to lead the caucus, but she also um, boosted up Margot Davidson, who's been in the legislature for a while. And Margot is heading up the state government committee, which is a group that deals with um, voting rights and what redistricting and a number of these issues that are critically important. And so the women have, are exerting their power as well as earning their stripes. It's been part of the general movement. I think most of the women I know who are active in the let's get more women elected really believe in reflective democracy, which is we not just need to get women elected, we need to make sure that all people are reflected in our legislature. And so we as a PAC really look for more women of color to support. But it's still hard. You say it's still hard because there is, you know, there is still a lot of times there's no roadmap for women because you're constantly becoming the first, right? We have, right. you know, the first, the first. How do you how do you deal with that as women smash these ceilings? Because there is always a price to being the first. Well, but one of the things that I've learned and, and um, you know, I was one of the first women in executive roles in my corporate career. So I was the first woman to run a big group of power plants or to run international pharmaceutical manufacturing plants. But I always look for other women to to talk to. And I, and I still think that that's a critical thing. And so what we try and do in our PAC is provide a way, a safe place for women to talk to each other. So when we were doing um, programs to try and raise money, we'd have candidates call in. And most of the candidates really want to talk to each other. And one that I want to highlight is a, a woman, Claudette Williams, who ran in Monroe County in Pennsylvania in the Poconos. And the first time she ran, she was told, well, you can't, uh, she's a former sergeant major in the army and uh, on the city council. And she was told, you can't run because this is um, a 
it's a, it's a white district. And how can you run in a white district? You're not the ideal candidate. And this year, despite being in a leadership position in the town council, she was talking at the council and raising something. And she had people say to her, listen, Missy, you can't do that. And I, and I laughed and I said, Claudette, you should have just answered that Sergeant Major Missy to you. But it's, there's still a big, it's a stumbling point. It's re- still very difficult. And I want you to jump in here, Stacey. When women make mistakes, specifically Black women, do you get the same deference, you think, as men? Are there prices to being the first and to being the first person and woman of color to get in that role? Absolutely. So I want to go back to something Christine said, which I think is so critically important that they told Claudette that she could not represent a white district. But for decades, generations, Black people have been told that we should not need representative leaders because white people can represent our interests. If that's true, right, then the reverse is also true, right? So that Black people can represent white people's interests and we ought to accept that uh, uh, possibility. But in terms of whether or not they are judged by the same standard, absolutely not. And research bears that out. Um, There's a saying that we talk about, um, women and minorities are judged on their performance, white men are judged on their potential, right? So it's about the last thing you did. That is going to be what follows you and what precedes you in your career, as opposed to what you're capable of doing, right? Um, People don't really look at the possibilities, which is oftentimes why we're not giving these opportunities. Because if you haven't done something, right, then you haven't proven that you can do it. So you're not given the opportunity to. And as soon as you're given the opportunity to, if you do anything wrong, right, then you are judged incompetent. And so it is extraordinarily difficult to get these opportunities in the first instance, because we always have to prove that we've already done it. But if you've never done it, you can't prove that you've done it. And then once we get them, it's a very tenuous job trying to hold on to them because we're not given the same leeway that other people are given. Twice as good. That phrase has been thrown around and, and Christine, jump in there because we think about what people of color, women, a lot of times you have to be twice as good to get the exact same thing. And maybe sometimes even less. I don't know that the statistics bear out twice as good, but we have to be better for sure, right? We have to be better for sure because we are just not given the presumption, right, of competence that other people are given. Um, We're not, you know, uh, excused for any kind of, uh, you know, mistakes or or, uh, learning curves that we might have, which are natural, right? Everyone has a learning curve in any new experience. It's to be expected, uh, but we're simply not afforded that benefit. I loved when um, Kamala Harris was first running for vice president, Peggy Noonan, in the Wall Street Journal um, columnist said that she didn't like Kamala's laugh and she didn't come across as very serious. And I thought, well, first of all, lady, you work for Ronald Reagan, so that says a lot about you. But also, more importantly, had she not seen um, at the time Senator Harris perform and, and question the attorney general, had she not seen her you know, question Supreme Court nominees, how could you say this is not a serious person? But it was that kind of thing. It's exactly what you're talking about, Stacy. It wasn't even about her performance. It was a nit. It was just a little thing. And, and I completely agree with your comment about um, who can represent who. You know, um, it, I don't know when it got to be that white guys can represent anybody, but uh, women can really only represent women and women of color. You know, you've got a small base that you could support. And when Sonia Sotomayor was up for the Supreme Court, um, Jeff Sessions asked her, you know, well, how can a wise Latina uh, judge the law? And you kind of go, 
wait, what? You know, why is that any different than if you ever ask a white guy whether he could judge uh, civil rights law? And it's the same kind of issues that we're dealing with. The good thing is that when Kamala Harris was challenged, a whole flood of people came out and to defend her. And it wasn't like, oh, well, we have to put up with this. It's don't you dare say that. And I think, so I do think we're making um, progress. Gotta ask you about the bench because you just mentioned Kamala Harris. She leaves the Senate with no black women, right. you know? And, and do we have a deep enough bench that as we see more women ascend, because for a long time, one might get through, one pop through is the bench deep enough to to support this this rise and what do we have to do to kind of increase uh the folks at the bottom to to make sure we don't have these gaps that we now see in this well, let me ask you what bench means and this is a mm-hmm. this is an important thing you know there's there's an, one of the old stories is a, a guy will look in the mirror one day and say hmm i see a senator you know tommy tuberville from was uh, alabama football coach and he decided he could be a senator I'm sorry, there are lots and lots of women who are at least as well qualified as a football coach. So I think, you know, women have always said, it's kind of like women applying for jobs. You feel like you've got to have 90% or of the qualifications for a job before you apply. And, um, but men will apply if they kind of think they'd be sort of good at it. And I think women have to get out of their own way. And part of that is training programs and outreach programs. And I sure wish I had more women in Pennsylvania, black women in Pennsylvania willing to run for office, but we got to get out of our way and not worry about whether we have exactly the qualifications. And Stacey, do you see more of that happening? Are we going to get out of our way uh, and does seeing more women be successful like, you know, seeing folks like Kamala Harris get into the VP spot does that sort of add to the courage? I think absolutely. One thing that struck me when um, both uh, Presidents uh, uh, Biden and Vice President Harris were being sworn in or right before, Mitch McConnell commented that both of them skipped the line in terms of becoming senators. Neither one of them had been in the House first. And I think that that's kind of the way that we have to start to think about this. Again, there were high barriers to entry because if you didn't have a certain pedigree, right, a certain uh, a resume, then you weren't considered uh, 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 competitive. But we saw that, you know, Kamala Harris went from being the state AG straight to the senator's office, straight to the, you know, uh, uh, White House. And we've seen people, you know, like Cori Bush and uh, AOC come into, you know, the House, you know, as activists, you know, without any political experience and catapult, right, to the forefront right. of our kind of political agenda. I think we've got to really radically reimagine um, who is qualified to, to serve in these roles. And I think that these young people without the traditional credentials coming in, really making a name for themselves and, you know, having high visibility really creates a roadmap for the women who will come behind them. Yeah, and I wonder, do we still, we, we, it seems to me we still have a lot of work to do though, because I, first thing comes to mind is the gender uh, wage gap. And Christine, I mean, women still getting paid less, even though we're getting a shot now, finally, at some of these seats and opportunities. Yeah. Exactly right. And we don't govern these things. We don't make sure that they, um, at any level in the organizations, we don't make sure that women have an equal, have an equal say and an equal right. I think raising, you know, um, look at the number. I think it's like 60% of the people in minimum wage jobs 
in um, sub $15 an hour jobs are women. 40% uh, of them raise families on, on their low income. These are, these are things that we have to allow women, help women to make more money and to see themselves in, in better roles in order to move on. Yeah. And we think about, th there's been a saying, uh, Stacey, and I'd love to hear your comments on this, that if we center policy around Black women and women of color, everybody else will do just fine. Yeah. Uh, could you explain what that means? And, and do you agree? I absolutely agree. And, you know, this is, it reminds me of a quote from Lonnie Guineer, who um, was nominated for uh, the uh, um, Department of Justice uh, Associate Justice or Associate um, for Civil Rights um, under the Clinton administration and didn't get it because, you know, of some of the work that she did. But one of the things that she said was she called, you know, Black people the canary in the coal mine, right? We are the bellwether for as, you know, uh, we go, so goes the country. Again, they say if, um, you know, uh, the country gets the cold, we get the flu, right? So if we address our needs, we certainly are going to be addressing the needs of the rest of the country. We experience the, uh, things at a, at, at a more uh, acute level oftentimes, but it is a bellwether for what's coming down the pike. Um, and so again, we saw COVID-19, for instance, ravage the black and brown community first, but it was coming for everybody else, right? right. It, it ravaged urban communities, right? And disadvantaged communities first, but that was just the canary in the coal mine signaling that the rest of the country was in trouble. So if we direct our policy and our efforts to those people who are at the margins, like black women often are, we absolutely are going to be getting to the heart of really what are the challenges that we all need to be confronting. What is the future? Is this, because some people say, is this a wave, Christine? Are we riding a wave? Women have been riding this wave since Me Too. Is it going to continue? Is this the new way? Well, first of all, we've never gone backwards in this. We have, we have stabled, we have um, flattened out the curve at times before going up. But I think um, I think we're in a, just an excellent position. Um, nobody is going to tell these women in leadership in the Pennsylvania legislature right now to be quiet. Um, a perfect example also was when you watched one of the presidential debates when Kirsten Welker was the uh, moderator. Uh, I, I just thought that was the most fabulous thing, that she was moderating this between two old white guys who were running for president and she was able to go out there and how she spoke and how she took care of herself and how deferential they had to be for her, to her, I think sets a model for all other different professions also. So no, I don't think we're going back. I just think we need, I love Stacy's thought that the black women bring everybody else along. I trust some of these women in, in elected office now to, to speak for me and for all Americans. Yeah. And as we wrap up, I got to talk about, got to mention, um, you know, our Nobel Peace Prize nominee, Ms. Stacey Abrams, and, and what her leadership from behind the scenes in many ways says about the future of Black women in leadership and just women in leadership and their power to make change. And if both of you can give a comment as we wrap up, I'd love to hear what your thoughts on that. I tend to have a bit of a more sanguine view about our progress, which I don't think has always been um, a forward progress. I think we we have seen periods of regression, especially around Black women and people of color, um, uh, because their, their numbers are so very small, you know, uh, a couple of people can make a huge difference in terms of the impact that it makes. But one of the things that I'm really encouraged about for the future is what Stacey Abrams has done. And what Stacey Abrams has done is she has demonstrated 
to lots of people, particularly among communities of color, that democracy is participatory, that it requires all of us, right, to get engaged and do our part. And we finally realize that perhaps government can be responsive. You know, um, again, minority and underserved communities have written off government for far too long, thinking that it simply cannot work for us. But the reality is it has not worked for us, but that doesn't mean that if we put it to work for us, it can't. Um, and I think that that's what we're starting to realize. And that's what we're starting to do. And that's what I'm encouraged by, again, activists like Cori Bush, who are moving from right social activism, Lucy McBath, you know, into political office, because they understand democracy is participatory. If we want things done, we have to do it for ourselves. Wonderful. Christine, final word. And strong women have to take the lead. And, and when, whether it's the, the uh, you know, an, an AOC um, in, in Congress or a Cori Bush, whether it's Joanna McClinton after just three terms in the state legislature rising up to lead the Democratic caucus, these are women who are willing to take the lead and put their stamp on things. And I think that, you know, I loved your comment about Stacey Abrams. One of the things we're trying to do in Pennsylvania is really help people to understand how their government is not working for them. Because when they do that, they're going to realize the value of the, of the women that we have in leadership now, and we'll have more of them, and we'll have a better better system of living. Thank you so much to Stacey Hawkins and to Christine Jacobs for coming on Flashpoint. Thank you for having me, Jenny. Next up, she wrote a letter to the editor highlighting a major double standard for Black women leaders. I have to function at a thousand percent just to be safe, just to be unscathed from the, the level of scrutiny. Billy's chief defender explains what it's like to be a first. We'll be right back. Hey, Flashpoint family, if you like what you hear, why don't you stick around and take a listen to some of our past episodes or our Flashpoint extras? One example is our exclusive interview with the one and only DJ Jazzy Jeff. He contracted COVID-19. He had some dark moments, but he survived. Take a listen to his journey. Another example is our Pat's Newsmaker of the Week, Andrew Wyatt. He's spokesman for actor and comedian Bill Cosby. He explains why they're petitioning the governor to hopefully get the cause out of jail early. All of this and more. Please subscribe to the podcast and rate and review. Now back to the show. This is Flashpoint and I'm Cherry Gregg. We're continuing our discussion about the rise of black women leaders. Recently, Philadelphia Police Commissioner Danielle Outlaw, the first black woman to be in that post, was under scrutiny following a scathing report related to the police response to George Floyd-related protests. The Philadelphia Inquirer editorial board called for her resignation, but many are now calling out a double standard of scrutiny when it comes to black women in leadership. Kier Bradford Gray, chief of the Defender Association of Philadelphia, wrote a letter to the editor doing just that, and she's here today. Kier, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you for having me, Cherry. So you wrote a letter to the editor specifically talking about severe criticism and the calling of the resignation of police commissioner Danielle Outlaw. First of all, why did you feel the need to speak up? I'm glad you said that because many people um, really don't understand why the public defender would be compelled to say something about uh, the police commissioner's call for resignation. But quite frankly, as a woman being in leadership positions, I feel the same thing that I felt when after uh, not even a year that Danielle Outlaw has been here and, and it needs to do many, many things that were left for her to improve and fix that after this, and let me be clear, 
I do not think the police's actions about with the protesters were at all okay. But I do think uh, Commissioner Outlaw took responsibility in terms of this is under her watch and that they're still investigating and that she will be holding people accountable. We'll be waiting on that. But so what I thought that it was pretty short-sighted, not even short-sighted, but pretty irrational to say that this woman who's only been here less than a year and dealing with the tremendous amount of challenges that we're dealing with, after this revelation of what happened that was not okay by any means, that she should not be allowed an opportunity to show that she can correct the behaviors, but instead she should be fired immediately because a mistake or a or a, an issue or challenge happens on her watch when she first gets here to create change. Just to, you know, she started on February 11th, I believe, yeah. and the pandemic was literally a month later. Right. And she was hit with racial unrest just less than 60 days after that. I mean, it was left, right, left, right. You say in this, this is uh, an illustration of how Black women in leadership positions are too often held to much higher performance standards than their white male counterparts. Explain this double standard that you seek to highlight here. Well, first of all, I know full well that many uh, view our opportunities as given rather than earned. And that is talked about a lot in terms of, well, it's a black woman's time. And it's almost as if we hadn't worked so hard to, to come where we are. So given that, there are many people who believe that when we get in these positions that we don't know what we're doing, uh, we're not good enough to hold them. Uh, we're not someone that they look to at, in terms of to respect uh, that our, our leadership abilities and capabilities are what they are to actually make a successful uh, administration out of where we, we you know out of where we are. And so I know that my standards, I have to I feel like I have to function at a thousand percent just to be safe, just to be un, unscathed from the, the level of scrutiny that I've gotten that I know male bosses that I've worked with have not gotten. The expectations um, were not the same. And the micromanagement that we sometimes suffer at the hands of people who don't believe that we should be there is it can be pretty unbearable. Not that we can't handle things, but we should not have to go through these things just because we are women in, in, in leadership position. We should get the same deference, the same patience, and the same willingness to provide support uh, when, we, when we are sincere about making sure that we are successful in our role. And just to be clear, it's not like uh, past police commissioners did not make mistakes because they have. I mean, the things that came out before Commissioner Ross decided he was just going to leave were things that were happening for years. It wasn't new. And so you think about this, Kier, like you are a first. You've experienced this scrutiny. Talk about you being a first. Is there price? For being a first there is a price for being a first and trying to uh shoulder what that means wanting to do a good job so you're not the last um but also enduring the criticism that comes with the way you do things different i mean there's a reason why black women are coming into leadership it's not just because we're black because we carry different experiences with us that lend its uh, ability to fill gaps in areas that we lead in and so when we come in and try to fulfill the um, vision uh, for the communities we care so deeply about, many people feel threatened that you're doing something differently that someone else didn't do in the past. Many don't understand why you're doing it and feel like, well, maybe you're going to be holding me to a certain standard. So before you do that to me, I'm going to tell you how much this is not, uh, uh, ex you know, meaning 
I'm going to basically make sure that I scrutinize what you're doing so that I no longer have to change how I do things. And I know for me, I come in and I look at assess things based on my experiences in my background. And if the, in the work that I'm in public service, there's a lot of gaps that I am calling attention to and raising standards around. And that doesn't make everyone feel comfortable. Yeah. And just to be clear, you're the first black woman to be chief defender yes. in Philadelphia, but that's not your first first. No. <laughs> my first first was in Montgomery County in 2012. And I will tell you, Cherry, I was being interviewed by the newspaper out there as an introduction to who I was. And the woman asked me, how does it feel to be the first person to ever run a, a department in county government uh, first African-American person to ever run a, a, a department in county government in Montgomery County. And I looked at her and I said, I am. <laughs> and she said, you didn't know that? I said, it's 2012. Why would I think that? Uh, I knew I was the first African-American for the public defender's office, but I did not know for county government, even though we've come a long way, we have a long way to go. Yeah. And why do you think there's so, such, such fly specting and what can black women and just anybody who's under this level of scrutiny do to sort of keep their nose down and, and eyes focused on the goalposts. So we have to do just that, but that takes not just us, but that takes a supportive network. It really does. Because sometimes when you're in these spaces and you're doing the things that you think are important, um, the types of scrutiny and negativity that you get could cause you to like question, you know, am I doing the right thing? And so when people aren't validating your experiences, but also supporting you or, or being an ear to you in terms of uh, helping you uh, think through uh, the things that you want to do, it, it really can dissuade people from having the courage necessary to make these changes. But I will say this, Chair, make no mistake. I think the people who scrutinize us and marginalize us in this way, they know our strength. They know our power and they know our capability. Because being a woman in these spaces where no woman has ever held, you must have something with you that you were able to make it to this role. And so I do think it's much more calculated than this. The fear that comes along with what a black woman can do. And I'm not saying it just because I'm a black woman, but I'm saying it because I'm living it and I know it. And I've done things that nobody else has done. I'm not saying I'm better than anyone else, but I just think differently about the situations. And I do things differently People recognize that, and, and it doesn't always make people feel comfortable. You have to have something special to be a first. For somebody to give you that spot when they've never given anybody else that spot, chance, I mean, it says a lot about your exceptionalism, because we're told constantly we have to be twice as good in order to get half as much. Do you feel that way? Oh, I absolutely do. I've had to be twice as good just to feel like I was not going to... Uh, just to feel like I was safe, meaning no one could call for my resignation about, about, you know, a small or minor mishap or mistake because everyone's going to make them. But if I made, made sure that I was functioning at like a thousand percent and I was doing, I was busting my butt all, all, all day and night, they couldn't fire me uh, over something that was something that was small. Do you think this has created a, a level of exceptionalism among black women leaders? that we're forced to be that way? I think so. I mean, I think when we get into these roles, we know it's on. We can't dip our toe out of bounds if <laughs> without it becoming a, a, a huge uh, issue or, or something that has been being made to show that we have an, a level of incompetence that we shouldn't be in this role. So 
We know what we're dealing with. We know what we're shouldering. And so how do, what's the cure for this as we get ready to wrap up? What's the cure for this um, ailment to make it really equal so that you won't see uh, the type of situations where, you know, Black women, one mistake, they get told to, they need to uh, resign, whereas white men can make multiple mistakes and still keep their jobs. We need to stand up against that. And we need to make sure that we're, we are louder and we are supportive and strength. Uh, we have we have the numbers. Women, Black women are, uh, one, one, we're the ones that carry the Democratic Party. So we definitely have the bravitas to, to say what we want and how we want to be treated. And so we, we can't shy away from these conversations because it will make because we think it makes us look weak or we're whining or you know or no one's going to hire us because we're not just sucking it up and toughing it out uh, yeah we've sucked it up and toughed it out and we will continue to do so but unless and until you you give me the same respect treatment and and just level of uh deference that you give your white counterparts uh we'll never be equal so i think cherry everything starts with speaking up and talking about it and validating each other's experiences so it can't be invalidated by by people who don't want to uh, hear us talk about these things. And it's going to take more of us to continue to just lead in our paths, go go for those roles. The more they start to see us, the more mainstream we start to become and, and the less impact or or fear it has on people when we do step into these roles and show how great we can be. Yeah, and I take it that's why you uh, had to write this letter to the editor. Um, it, it, I had to. It, it couldn't. I couldn't hold it in. Um, I'm not sticking up for the police and their actions, but I am fair is fair and right is right. And I know as a black woman leader, I know that there is a double standard and that double standard was applied when they called her to resign after not even a year in the role uh, and after facing what no other police chief had to face in their first four months of coming onto the job, no other police chief. And so look, Commissioner Outlaw has to has a lot to do. And I don't think she'd want us to give her a pass on holding her accountable to do those things. And I'm not going to give her a pass on that, but I'm going to give her a chance. Yeah. Thank you for that. And I gotta say, I give it to her. She she resigned to stay. Good for her. She and that's what we would expect her to do. And uh, she's tough. And and that shows a lot of character on her part. So with that, I want to say thank you so much to Kia Bradford Great for coming on Flashpoint. Thank you, Cherry. I appreciate you. Next up to pay it forward, he's created a space to support moms in need. You know, unconditionally, you know, they give. A Philadelphia's man effort to get a hand of encouragement. We'll be right back. Patriot Home Care is here to help when their clients need them most. If you're a caregiver and feel uncertain about where you're working now, call Patriot today. Patriot Home Care is now paying up to $600 in hazard pay to its current and newly hired direct care workers, recognizing their hard work and caring for our consumers during these uncertain times. Hazard pay will be up to $600 per direct care worker. Visit PatriotHomeCare.org. That's PatriotHomeCare.org. Or call 1-877-535-5550. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to subscribe to the Flashpoint Podcast by downloading the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. All you have to do is search Flashpoint. Now, we here at KYW, we are all about community, and a local man is paying it forward by empowering black mothers. Here to talk about his initiative is our Patriot Home Care Changemaker, Sister Talk PHL founder, Adam McNeil. Adam, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you so much for having me. I definitely appreciate this opportunity. 
First of all, Sister Talk PHL, what problem were you seeking to solve when you created it? I really wasn't trying to solve a problem. I was more or so trying to bring sisters together. I seen the importance of collaboration and community. And it was like, you know, how can I bring them together? They all go through the same stuff. They fighting each other. You know, they're dying, just trying to do so much stuff, you know, and they're all going through the same thing. Like, you know, let's just heal together, you know, um, because women have been my support system and I just seen all the trials that they went through. Yeah. And so what does Sister Talk PHL do? So we focus on supporting single mothers. Uh, we focus on helping Black women combat social injustices uh, through structured community events. And we also just, we, we want to be an essence that redefines sisterhood. And so you're a man uh, yes. working yes. with women yes. to help redefine <laughs> sisterhood. Let's talk about what drew you to that, you know, because that's an unusual connection. It is. But for me, it wasn't. I grew up in a household full of women. I was around women all of my life. And I just seen an important need to support them, you know, unconditionally, you know, they give. I spent a lot of my years in prison from a juvenile to an adult. And the letters that I received, the visits that I received, the care packages that I received came from Black women. You know, and sometimes the Black women didn't even know me. It was just a pen pal. It's like, you know, they do so much for us as Black men, but wholeheartedly, like, we don't, we don't do enough. So you flipped it and decided to do this. And I've seen you on social media You've done quite a few things. Tell me about some of the events and efforts to bring women together in this way. So back in 2018, when we first started Sister Talk, it wasn't Sister Talk PHL. Um, at that point, it was just Sister Talk. And what I was doing was I was creating bi-monthly empowerment sessions where we would, you know, get women to talk about taboo topics, whether it was domestic violence, whether it was self-worth, whether it was health and wellness, whatever it may be, we would get some women that would like to come out and serve as panelists. And they would talk about these conversations and black women vendors that would be selling their products. So it was an opportunity for me to, you know, not only keep the money in the community, support the single moms trying to do their own businesses, and then also encourage women to, you know, bond together and get through their problems. 2019, I kind of shelved Sister Talk. I was trying to survive. I, I was, I needed a job. I didn't, I didn't have anything. I just started working for DHS. You know, I was still recovering from a car accident. I had lost everything that I had. And I just didn't really know what to do with Sister Talk. Um, and then when COVID hit, I just was sitting in my living room one day and I was just like, you know what? Trump about to give me $1,200. This is about to be the last $1,200 this man gave me. Let me go ahead and do something good with this. I'm going to take this money and I'm going to start washing clothes. Yep. That's the new mission. I'm supporting moms. They out here doing everything for us. They dying. They getting killed. Their children are being murdered. You know, they have no safe space to really heal. And I just thought about, you know, what, what better place to, you know, get mothers together than to start renting out laundromats. So you just rented out a laundromat said, come wash our clothes. Yeah. Our first community wash day was August 6th. Unemployment was over in July. The extra $600. So I was already rallying in July. As soon as my birthday hit, I was like, okay, well, you know, we, we, we on this mission now. Okay. You know. I'm going to treat myself and then the rest of the month, you know, it's going to go back to the community. You know, I was looking for diapers. I was looking for care package items. But our first event, we sponsored 57 mothers. We had organizations come out. It was such an opportunity to 
to connect with mothers, you know, and the first one was so essential because it gave me that, that diversity, you know, as a black man, you know, my first priority is black women, but I also understand that mothers are essential no matter what ethnicity they are. When I had a chance to talk to mothers of different ethnicities outside of African-American, it was very heartfelt and touching because they thoroughly appreciated it. And it was genuine. Just the ability to wash their clothes. Yeah, and I'm like, you know what, I said, and it's sad because you have so many individuals that can do something so small like this, you know? I think that essential is overlooked. They don't know how hard it is for a mother to wash clothes and she got three, four, five, six kids, especially a couple babies. You got to pick if you're going to be clean for the week or if your kid's going to be clean for the week. And it's like, that shouldn't be the case. So what is your vision for Sister Talk PHL? My vision is to be worldwide. I want to change the world. I believe that supporting Black women on, on a higher level will, you know, give us the ability to change the world, you know, especially within our community. I want to recreate family structures. We really need to edify them. And that comes with the mother. That that comes with putting programs in place to, to, to bring the father back into the house, making the woman more, like, solid. We want to get them around, you know, like-minded women that are pushed through. Next year, I want you to talk about, oh my God, I went to a community wash day, but I'm a homeowner now because I, I got to this program and they helped me save my money. And now I'm a homeowner. 70% of the African-American mothers, single mothers are, you know, living below the poverty line and they're facing evictions. I want to challenge that number this year. Whatever entities that I can collaborate with and, you know, build a stronger dynamic so that our families are safe. How can people support you? We have a GoFundMe that is in the link in our bio on Sister Talk, or the Sister Talk PHL page on our Instagram. We are looking for a lot of product donations. Um, I created a new initiative called Girls Night, the Beauty and Me at Weekend to Remember, where every month we will sponsor 10 young ladies in a youth shelter and we will pamper them for the entire weekend. So, um, they can come out and speak, whether they want to volunteer at the community wash day. I mean, it's just a lot of moving parts. Yeah. Well, I want to say congratulations to you, um, Adam, for seeing a problem, seeing an issue and deciding to step up and bring people together. Uh, check them out. Sister Talk PHL. They're on social media, specifically on IG and provide support. I wish you luck. Thank you so much. I definitely appreciate this. That's it for Flashpoint. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. And since we always wrap it with a quote, here's one from Reverend Jesse Jackson. Leaders must be human enough to make mistakes, humble enough to admit them, strong enough to absorb the pain, and resilient enough to bounce back and keep on moving. This show is produced by Ariane Fulcher and me, your host, Cherry Gregg. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Until next week, thanks for listening.